Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. My guest this week is an example of why you shouldn't leave your first employer in a huff. In fact, you should try and stay on good terms. His name is Stephen Yu. He's the founder of Blue Whale Capital and the lead manager of the Blue Whale Growth Fund. Now, Stephen started his career as a fund manager at Hargreaves Lansdowne. He then held positions at Newstar, Artemis and Navsky Capital. And then in 2016, with the backing of his old employer, Peter Hargreaves, launched the Blue Whale Growth Fund. Now, the Blue Whale Growth Fund is a long-only, concentrated global equity fund, and we'll go into more detail on the fund in the episode itself. But I urge you to go to their website. There's lots of content available at bluewhale.co.uk. Stephen was a great guest. Uh, He's got a small team, a young team working out of London. Um, We talk about his approach to investment management, um, the differences between managing money and running a business, um, and really the future for Blue Whale. You know, they're three years into it, they've raised assets, and, you know, they're starting to make a name for themselves. Without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Stephen Yu, welcome to the podcast. Stephen, how did you start your career? I started my career at Hargreaves Lansdowne in early 2000s, and that's when I met up with Peter Hargreaves. So we have known each other now for over 20 years. And when I first started my career, I was involved in the multi-manager and fund of funds teams at Hargreaves Lansdowne, and I was there for five years. Did you think um, in... 10 or 15 years time, you would be managing a global equity fund. That's something that I always wanted to do. And obviously, I think looking back now in my earlier career, that being involved on the multi-manager side has provided quite a lot of knowledge. In, in what terms sense? Of, in terms of meeting with a lot of fund managers or some of my competitors now, they are still around, learning about different investment processes, how people do things. And I think it does shape shape uh in terms i mean shaping our investment philosophy nowadays at blue well so so i think that was very important because ultimately which i'm I'm sure we can expand on this a bit later that it's all about doing better than your competitors Mm -hmm. and if you know them better then you know like what you need to do to uh to go the extra mile so you started an multi-manager at hargreaves lansdowne where where did you head next uh, after five years, I joined Team Steer at Newstar Asset Management in 2007. And at the time, we were running both a long-only UK fund and also a long-shot UK hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then after that, then? Then uh, Team Steer and myself, we then moved across to Artemis. And then we were running the same strategy. And I was at Artemis for about four years. So I've worked with Team uh, for a good six to seven years. Okay. And then what made you, why did you start Blue Whale? So that's something I I have been, probably have discussion with Peter for, for a good period of time. And I think one thing that I've learned about um, 
I mean, over, over the course of my career is you, you, if you want to be a good fund manager or maybe you want to work in a good environment means that you can be really focused. I think you really need to work for a company that's from the top to the bottom that share the same culture. So obviously in the investment team, we are very competitive, we are very focused. But if you also have other side of the business, let's say sales, operation, marketing that have the same focus, I think it does help to shape how everyone can can improve at the same time. And and I think there's this funny story that we when we first started just before COVID, that, Actually, we started three years ago now, but before COVID, that everyone were by their desk at seven o'clock, including uh, the sales operation and marketing. And I think it does give you a bit of taste on how how focused we were. And and I think it's only possible if you do it yourself, because let's say the alternative would be me joining another company to launch a new fund, but then you probably won't get the same level of support from mm-hmm. other departments who would have other focus. So I suppose what you gain in, in freedom, you lose in support. I mean, what were the challenges in, in starting a, comp- a sort of investment management um, uh, house from scratch, essentially? I think the short answer is almost impossible. I, I've i said this many times, like with, without Peter Howard's backing, uh, day one, both seeding the fund and also supporting the company, is definitely very difficult to start up a new asset management firm today. And I think partly, I think there are two things that come into play. The first thing would be that, I mean, the regulatory requirement is quite intense, which means that you do need to have quite a lot of resources in place uh, to kick off the project. Um, And then secondly, in order to have a lot of resources in terms of investment headcount, then you need to have the capital to seed the business before we actually attract any traction from investors. So So I think... We, we do see ourselves as a disruptor in our industry, but you don't get many of those. But, um, you've had a long career investing and um, uh, investment management is actually quite different to people management. How have you reconciled those two skills? I, yeah. Or I, I, is it different? Perhaps it, you, know, you can apply a lot of what you know in investment management to people management. I think it's quite different, but but I would say the similarity between the two is we. I mean, at Bluewell, we 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 truly embrace a team effort, and at the same time, because we are relatively younger, I'm in my early forties. My the rest of the team are in the early thirties, so you can see that we are all probably at the we we've just. I mean, we started our career much later than some of our competitors now, who might be in their fifties or sixties. And I think when you have a younger team that typically we could be a bit more pragmatic. Uh, I mean, we do embrace meritocracy in a company and we talk about things. And I think it's the same approach that we apply to analyzing companies. And we tend not to fall enough with companies. We look at all the metrics that we can get our hands on. We then debate on what sort of conclusion that we can draw from those numbers and metrics. And I think that's the same thing that we do in the company and, and people need to deliver. We set a target and we work quite hard. So so I think if you're smart enough, you work quite hard, you're quite focused that you tend to deliver than not to deliver. So let's think about your um, investment process. So how you look at your the global universe. You know, the global universe, as we discussed, is wide, it's broad. Um, how do you sort of approach looking at stocks? 
So the investment philosophy of the fund is quite simple. So we invest into high quality businesses and an attractive price or valuation. I think the first part of the equation is you have to ask yourself that where, which part of the market that you feel that you can add value and which bits that you feel that you can have a differentiated angle than other competitors. And if the answer is no, that you're not going to offer anything new, then I think you should try to avoid those sectors or so industries. So what would be an example of, of, of one of those sectors? So I, I think two comes to mind, which I think is pretty hot uh, sectors to, to some other players. I think firstly is banks. We don't do any banks. We just do not feel that there's enough transparency behind the balance sheet of banks. Like if you don't get transparency means that you can never get to the bottom of what goes behind the assumptions in the balance sheet. There's a black box element. Exactly. So, so how do you actually go around that? And, and the other side of that, obviously in the context of our fund that we run a high conviction portfolio between 25 and 35 stocks, which means that any position would have a material impact to the fund. And this is not like a hundred stock portfolio that you can just have a small position in some certain names that might you don't actually know them that well. So I think for any company in the fund that they would be quite material in terms of impact. So we do need to have a conviction, which means getting to the bottom. And I think the other side of that would be the more speculative like pharma and biotech. We definitely don't feel that we can foresee which drug company is going to come up with a COVID vaccines in the next six months or so. And if we don't actually know the answer, why speculate? So we try not to speculate. And then I think the last point out of that is we, we, we see ourselves as bottom up investors, which means that we tend not to take a top down view on macro issues. But how we actually go about companies is we would ask the question whether our companies can transcend macro, which means that they're not going to be impacted either way of Trump or Biden mm-hmm. were to be elected, Brexit, trade negotiation, etc. And and I think basically sticking to what you know. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me, oh, do I do I have a crystal ball on whether or how this election is going to go, whether this COVID how severe this COVID would be to the economy, when is it going to recover? I think that's those are very difficult call. I think some people would try to make those calls, mm-hmm. but to us, I think we probably have draw a line to, to say to ourselves that this is not the area that we feel that we will be adding value. Mm-hmm. So we add value through bottom-up research on companies. Mm-hmm. Transcending macro. And what about interaction with management? Under usual circumstances, do you spend a lot of time traveling around the world, meeting managers, meeting companies? Or do you you feel that you can do a lot more of your job sitting here in London? Yeah, we we do actually spend a lot more time researching on companies than speaking to the company. So both, both are important. But on a relative scale that we... I mean, you can work out how many hours uh, we spend per company. Like, for example, like if we have 25 companies in the fund, there are five of us in the team, let's say 10 hours individually uh, per day. We would spend on average about 40 hours per company per month, mm-hmm. just mathematical compared to maybe if you have two individual covering 75 companies, you just spend less time. So let's say we do spend 40 hours per company per month, then yeah, speaking to the management is important, but that would be one to two hours mm-hmm. of a month. So relatively, we feel that there's a lot more work to be done to get the original view and, and seeing the competitive space 
then after we've done all the work, yeah, surely we should we, we could speak to the management to to get some feedback as well whether we are getting our view correct. And what do you think? What have you? Been, it sounds like you have a very small team and, and sort of short lines of communication. What have been the mistakes um, over the last three years? Let's say. I think that there are quite quite a few mistakes, obviously, and um, I think one thing. I think a couple of things. I think firstly, we don't stand still, which means that if we have made a mistake or we recognize a mistake has been made, that we do act quite quickly. So we don't sit back and say, oh, that is fine. Maybe give it another six months to a year and maybe we'll come back, even though that we would have some concerns. So I think that would be the worst mistake anyone can make. And I think we have done that quite well. But in terms of investment mistakes, I think obviously we would have gone into a company that we thought they were pretty high quality and something changed or evolved over a short period of time. And then they they started to look less uh, of a high quality company. And then secondly, we after we have done all the research on our companies, we do translate our understanding into a financial model. So we, we built a financial model for every holding in the fund. And we we do factor in our understanding of the company through the assumptions, and then we try to make forecasts on how much money this company is going to make over the next few years. And obviously, it's not a science. We do get our assumptions wrong. Maybe we didn't understand the company that well, or we misunderstood certain issues. So I think getting the assumption wrong or maybe not correct, it would be like a constant challenge in other fun. Staying on that, I mean, what percentage of your time do you spend on the sort of qualitative research, so non-financial uh, part of your um, research, and how much of it is qualitative, so building models, etc.? Uh, it's really just one thing. So so I, I, I think the interesting thing about financial modelling, which is basically looking at historical financial, putting in your own assumptions and making forecasts, is quite a straightforward exercise. Straightforward means that anyone can do it, but you probably could end up in a very different conclusion depending on what assumptions you put into. So it all down to how well you understood a company, how much research you have done on a company level, and, and also at the same time, the industry level, the competitors, etc. Because it's quite easy to say, oh, this company have done well, I would expect that they're going to take 50% market, market share in the next five years, put it in your model, suddenly it jack up a very nice number, you thought, oh, you're ahead of the consensus, it's very cheap, etc. But that could mean that you... But that doesn't mean that that's going to be correct because that you are then assuming that there's no competitors coming in, the company continue to grow, to execute, etc. So, so, so it's really interesting actually because this, I, I don't know, I'm sure there's a, there's a proper phrase for this, but I sort of call it model bias in the sense that the more time you spend on a model, the more sort of bought in you are. How, as a team, do you sort of try and um, neutralize that bias? Um, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that, that plays into the heart of how we work together as an investment team. So there are five of us in the team. And basically what we do is, I mentioned this earlier, that we truly embrace a team effort and we really do. So each individual, they cover certain stocks or sectors. And But what we do after that is we do debates on every single holdings or new ideas as a team. We go through the assumptions into the model that that individual is responsible for together as a team. And obviously, you can probably imagine that for the 
for the individual who covered the stock, he might have some biases because he has spent a lot of time looking at the company with his, his lens and he has done most work on the company. But then the other four individual, obviously we would have different take on certain issues and different take on certain numbers, assumptions. And I think by bringing all this together, and if everyone is quite sensible like us, that we we talk about numbers, nothing is personal, then we tend to get to the right answer at the end. But if I was sitting in your um, morning research meeting, um, does it get very heated or are you um, are you fairly pragmatic? Is yeah, I think I think it's been it could be fairly heated. I, I think it's sensible to say that. I think if I give you one example, uh, PayPal is one of a cup, I mean, one of the holdings in the fund since we started it has been a top 10 holding when we started. At the moment, it's still in the fund, but not in the top 10. But throughout the last three years, that we probably have spent among the team over 100 to 200 hours just debating on the stock, not research. So research still take place just like any other companies. The reason that we have so much debate on PayPal, less so now, because I think the competitive positioning is a bit more secure, but prior to that, you're talking about Apple Pay, the wallets from Amazon, Google. There's a lot of things going on in the payment space. So without debating it intensely, which means that we try to get to the bottom of, of the um, of those issues, then is then you 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 tend to miss things. Mm-hmm. So so I think in the context of certain companies that we definitely have quite a lot of heated debate and and I think the in, the, the beauty of our debates is no one takes it personal because we obviously we are not we we are just focusing on the companies that are about fundamentals. If we if we ended up saying that we've got it wrong, then I think yeah we do admit that. You'd be very clear that your your process is, is very much bottom up and and so this is, I suppose, a top-down question, and it's probably as a result of your investment process. But do you think you, your portfolios has, have certain style biases? And um, you, know, you say that you avoid financials and, and healthcare. Um, are there any sort of broad market moves that would make your portfolio not perform particularly well? It's a very interesting question. So, so I think if I look back over the last six, sorry, three years ago now, before we started, we started with a blank piece of paper. And I did mention earlier that when I worked with Team Steer, I was a UK fund manager. So I was covering a lot of UK companies for C100, 250, mid and small cap, etc. for a good number of years. And later on, I moved to do global at, uh, at a hedge fund. And the, but when we first started three years ago, we didn't know what to do, which means that we, we look at the world like it's, uh, it's all fresh. Mm-hmm. And after we've done all the research that we could, we came to the conclusion that most of the high quality businesses sit in the US. So if you say, what is the bias in the fund? I think quality, it would be the term, but how the quality got translated on the portfolio level, which is the, the maybe the secondary biases that you're referring to, then we ended up to have quite a lot of exposure to the US. It just happened that over the last few years, most of the high quality global businesses are American companies compared to maybe five to 10 years ago when British companies were the truly global and high quality. And the other thing that we ended up uh, doing was that a lot of these businesses ended up to be technology related. 
and obviously now with with the COVID just behind us in terms of kicking off the trend that people recognize that yeah a lot of these tech techy companies are actually quite well positioned not only that they are net cash but then they can also survive a recession like now and they're making more money now than before so I think if you put these two together on the fund level that you would see that uh, we have relatively high exposure to the US about 70% to the US and versus the index versus the index about 65 ish and the other side of that would be that we also have quite a decent exposure to technology names about 60% of the fund Mm -hmm. but but then maybe the next question is how do we how do you define technology well Stephen how do you define (laughs) technology Um, because we have had you know we've had discussions on these podcasts about technology and and hardware and software and making the distinction between the two but how do you guys do it at Blue Well? Yeah, the, the this is the probably the most important question that we we try to maybe get the points across because it's, obviously if you just look at the GICS definition which most people look at you see sixty percent of technology exposure on the fund level, but within this sixty percent, I mean you do have quite diverse mix of companies and also subsectors. And at the same time, which I will touch on a bit later, is that there are a lot of technology names or sectors that we deem as low-quality businesses. So we definitely do not have a bias to technology names. We, this is not a tech fund. I think to start off with, you might, I, I, may, maybe you would know this or not, like MasterCard and Visa mm-hmm. are considered as technology stocks. But then you probably would argue that they are more of a financial because it's card payments, the payment network, etc. But they're considered as technology. Yeah. So I think that's a bit misleading. But obviously, the business itself is power, massively powered by technology. Mm. Right? You can, you, can, you can just do it. The contactless, the payment get made, obviously, is powered by technology. It's like, this is yeah. not on paper. So, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, obviously, you also have the more probably well-recognized names, such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, yes, their technology, but then Amazon, I think it's in, in, in kind of in the mother ground now. Do you say Amazon is a tech business or is this just a more advanced version of a high street retailer, but then you do all the shopping online, right? Mm-hmm. It's like your your new generation of Walmart in the US or John Lewis mm-hmm. and Amazon is basically has well, done that quite have, a long time ago. Yeah, good example. So let's take Amazon, a good example, because it is, as you say, tech, grouped as a technology stock. But actually, quite large parts of its earnings are kind of cyclical, are they not? Based on um, how much we spend on groceries um, or indeed ad revenue. Um, so how do you unpick, therefore, the technology names? And, and do you look at them in terms of um, core or cyclical? Yeah, I think in the context of Amazon that we, we still like the companies. I mean, valuation is another thing which we are less, we feel less positive about. Hence, that we have a much smaller position in Amazon now compared to a few months ago. The interesting thing about Amazon is, I mean, you can literally cut Amazon into two half. One would be the more cyclical e-commerce business. Mm-hmm. So the shopping, doing yeah. shopping on Amazon's platform. The other half of the business would be the cloud business, mm-hmm. the AWS, yeah. which I think you can call it, call it truly tagged because mm-hmm. it's cloud, is it powers Netflix. Any program you watch on Netflix is powered by AWS, which is part of Amazon. 
So if given a choice, which maybe you will get to that later, mm-hmm. is regulatory risk. Would that would you think the the value of Amazon would go up or down if it was split up? I think it would go up. I, and I think given a choice, we would rather own the cloud business than the e-commerce business. The e-commerce business is something that is highly competitive. You're competing on price all the time, volume, uh, people's feeling about spending, whether they want to spend more or less. And the margin is typically quite low as well. So you would never expect Amazon to make a very high margin on the e-commerce side just because it's very competitive. But on the other hand, on the cloud business, AWS is the market leader. There were there are, there are only three players in the world. The second biggest player is Microsoft Azure, and the third one would be Google Cloud. So Amazon being the market leader, and you can probably see that there's going to be a lot more demand in terms of uh, cloud bandwidth or the the data that need to be stored, application to be run. And yes, yeah, so we would rather to pick the cloud business but and the e-commerce. It's more, more capital intensive, way more capital intensive there, yeah. Yes, it's more good. it's more capital intensive. And I think the question obviously to ask is like where are we in the journey, right? So so they're building a lot of data centers now. There are a lot of kind of demand in terms of applications and content need to be stored. At some point, it's going to run out, right? It run, running out means that there will be enough supply of data center versus demand for, for data centers. And I think that that's probably what's going to separate us from some of our other, sorry, some, some of the criticism that we have received that we are tech fund. I mean, we're not. I mean, at some point, if the this structural growth trajectory, which still could last for a good five years plus, runs out, and the valuation of Amazon become much less attractive or really expensive, then yeah, we could we could move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Let's um, let's get that crystal ball out again and, and think about the future. Um, the active managers have, have always had the sort of existential threat of passives, so um, uh, where investors will will essentially buy an index through a, through an ETF. What do you think the future holds for the passive active debate? And do you think that the sort of the slow march of passage will, passive will eventually engulf active? This is probably the most important question in the context of well being a startup. And we we already talk about that, about 300 funds in our sectors mm-hmm. in the UK space. Uh, I think there are about 1,500 equity funds like across global UK, etc. If I think if you look at the performance of a lot of these funds, relative to passive, majority of the funds, they have underperformed. Mm-hmm. After fees, yeah. Yeah, after fees. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me, if like there's certain individual asked me, oh, I want to pick a global fund, that's 300 of those, and what do I want, what do I need to do? So I think the first question I will ask that person is, do you actually know any good fund manager? If the answer is no, I think it's better off for that individual to put their money into a passive until they have identified some good fund managers that he want to probably pay them to manage their money. And in our context, so in the global space, obviously we might be a bit biased because this is what we believe in, in terms of uh, the kind of the, the, the puzzle to deliver significant outperformance, is I think it's better off for the individual to pick a few high conviction funds on top of the passive, so alongside of the passive, 
And at least because I think one thing that people need to recognize is passive funds would never outperform the market because the passive is the market. I mean, it would actually underperform the market net of a small fee. And if you can have alongside the passive some other alternative that could give you the potential to significantly outperform, it's not guaranteed, then yeah, it could work in the investor context. But to start off with, I do feel that we have too many funds mm-hmm. in, our, in our industry and certainly in the global space, I, I would be more happy, let's say 10 years from today, that we have fewer funds, but then all of them are good choice for investors. So investors can take the call and invest themselves, but rather than you have so many underperforming funds and that is just detracting value. Mm-hmm. I see. What do you think creates the most efficient market? Um, uh, one, in the, one end of the spectrum, you just have um, all active managers. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you basically have a very, very small amount of active managers make, you know, essentially discovering the price. Um, and then an enormous um, passive uh, element to the market. So at what point do you think um, the active-passive debate stabilizes? It's, it's difficult because I think, I mean, if I'm just going to speculate, 10 years from today, I would speculate that passive would remain a dominant part of the of our market i think at the moment depending on which market you're looking at like the the numbers over 50 percent in terms of the split now probably 50 60. would i be surprised 10 years from today that number get to 70 to 80 probably unlikely to i would be surprised i think the biggest problem that we have in the active space is not just the the definition of active which means that you're doing something different. But there has there just been a lot of underperforming managers that have not done their job properly. So hopefully Bluewell are not in that camp that we could continue to deliver. And I think what makes the industry healthier is if we have more transparency in terms of performance relative to alternative, let's say passive, that fund manager who, who has done well, should be rewarded, which means that more money could go that way. But for funds that have not done well, I think people should be taking their money out and maybe those funds shouldn't be around anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, how the mix is going to be, I think it's difficult, but typically I think you would probably argue that there are not many exceptional fund managers around in general. And so lesser of fund managers 10 years from today, I won't be surprised. So maybe 80, 20. Too passive. Interesting. Write that down, I think, soon. Um, turning tact, um, ESG is clearly an important topic, um, not only in finance. I think it, it it's, um, straddles um, all areas of our life, um, environmental, social and governance issues. Um, how do ESG factors feed into your investment process? Yep, this is a very important part of our process. So this is not ESG fund, just to be clear. This is not a high impact fund that we are not actively investing in company that is going to change the world. This is not what we do. But as part of our investment process on how we define high quality businesses, that one of the key metrics is that they need to deliver high return on investor capital on a sustainable basis. So over the next five to 10 years. And if they are probably causing harm to the environment as a company, let's say oil and gas companies, mining companies, etc., 
then it's very unlikely they can deliver that return profile because it means that there will be more cost to the business in terms of regulatory costs, environmental costs. And obviously there's a lot of other things that goes on within that space on the, on the climate change, etc. So you tend to then ended up defining those sectors or companies as low quality businesses. Secondly, if you're selling product that might be a threat to people's health, like tobacco companies, etc., then you do get the same kind of protest from the other side of the of the market that is unlikely for them to deliver high return investment capital. Last but not least, I think we got asked about this many times that we we don't have a lot of exposure to emerging markets or Asia. It's purely because of the the much lower uh, kind of corporate governance so-so and all that stuff and and I think if for for good company that you do need to have good corporate governance so I think you put all this together this is how we feel ESG plays a role but it might be slightly different to some of the more active high-impact ESG funds mm -hmm. final couple of questions what what advice Stephen would you give to, to students or, or young associates uh, associates who are sort of starting out in their careers in finance um, what skills do you look for when you're hiring? And um, if you were you know, back at your time with Hargreaves, what would you be saying to yourself? The market's definitely evolved now since, compared to the time that I started my career. I definitely feel that uh, in this market now, there's more information available than you can consume. And it could be an illusion to certain people who, who ended up reading a lot of news on their mobile phone, on Bloomberg, etc., and then they feel that they have done the work. <laughs> and I think there's a big difference between reading the news, getting information versus translating those information into knowledge mm -hmm. or understanding of that company or the issues that you're looking at. So my advice would be don't take shortcuts. So shortcuts means like getting just the information flows. You always want to go back to basics. So that's what we do as well. Like we don't, for example, we don't speak to any sell-side analysts. We don't use any broker research when we analyze a company. We go back to the basics. We go through the annual reports, the transcripts. We speak to the management. We basically just go back to the source. Obviously, it's very hard work. I mean, you can probably takes less time to read a broker's research, like a five-pager, you get a view within like 20 minutes, then go through like five different annual reports, spending five hours, and then you get to another view on that. But I think the quality of the view would be different, would be very much different. So I think anyone who's starting up now should really go back to the primary sources mm -hmm. and go back to basics. Interesting, interesting. And do you think, and what kind of skill set do you look for when you're sort of hiring? Um, when you go and speak to your headhunters or whatever you do, um, what are you looking for? I think it depends on what, what functions that mm -hmm. you, you, you're kind of trying to pursue a role in, in yourself. In the context of the investment team obviously being quite analytical, that is the starting point. So let's say you... you I mean, you like sitting in front of a desk or computers to go through a lot of data, a lot of like research, etc. I think that is like a, you, you probably would do better if you enjoy those kind of stuff. But I think more importantly, given that our industry is very competitive and the market continue to evolve, I think one thing that we didn't talk about is, is, is over the course of my, my 20 years career that the markets evolve. There's a lot of things that would have added value in the past, 
no longer works now. So now it's a different market era that it means that you need to do things differently. The investment philosophy could be unchanged, but the execution of the investment philosophy has evolved. So I think keeping an open mind is not just a textbook. I mean, I, I can tell you whatever I we do now and you can copy us, but if you don't evolve with the markets, then that could become dated. So I think keeping an open mind to keep learning about new things, how the market evolve, and you can't just look back and say, oh, that has worked in the last 10 years. It's definitely going to work in the next 10 years. No, unlikely, no. So uh, interesting, two points I'll take from that then. Keeping your open mind and don't take shortcuts. Stephen Yu, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. And our guest this week, Stephen Yu, founder of Blue Whale Capital. Now, if you want any more information about Blue Whale Capital, do head to their website at bluewhale.co.uk. There's a lot of content um, up there for you to look at. And if you've enjoyed the episode, why not like it or subscribe to the series and tell your friends. Thank you.